welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Thank you. I'm so thankful and honored and humbled to be here. And um, I wanted to start by inviting the kids up, which is why I'm still down here. But I don't know if there are a lot of kids here, but if you are younger than me, you can come on up. Um, Yeah, so if anybody is willing to. I know also I am speaking to kids at home. So I love it if you come. You know, if you're in middle school or younger, you're awesome. Thank you for coming. Anybody else? There are two other people back there, but they refuse to come. Okay, two other people. No. <laughs> it's okay. They can listen. You're, you're amazing. Thank you. Okay. Let's, um, we'll, we'll just let them listen in anyway. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to read. Have you read the book, um, The Chronicles of Narnia? Have you read The Magician's Nephew by C.S. Yeah. Lewis? Yeah. It's my least favorite one because it doesn't have any of the more adventurous parts with the Pevins people. But yeah, okay, okay, you read it. It's it's her least favorite. That's okay. Um, (laughs) Okay, so for the people who haven't read it, I'm going to fill them in a little bit. There. There's a part in it where the lion Aslan, who's the king of the whole world, maybe of all the worlds, is creating the land of Narnia. And there are two kids from our world who are there. They are Diggory and Polly. And the voice they're hearing is Aslan's. And besides that, they're in a completely, utterly dark black world. Okay. In the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice had begun to sing. It was very far away, and Diggory found it hard to decide from what direction it was coming. Sometimes it seemed to come out from all directions at once. Sometimes he almost thought it was coming out of the earth beneath them. Its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of the earth herself. There were no words. There was hardly even a tune, but it was, beyond comparison, the most beautiful noise he had ever heard. It was so beautiful he could hardly bear it. Then two wonders happened at the same moment. One was that the voice was suddenly joined by other voices, more voices than you could possibly count. They were in harmony with it, but far higher up the scale, cold, tingly, silvery voices. The second wonder was that the blackness overhead all at once was blazing with stars. They didn't come out gently one by one, as they do on a summer evening. One moment there had been nothing but darkness. Next moment, a thousand, thousand points of light leaped out. Single stars, constellations, and planets brighter and bigger than any in our world. There were no clouds. The new stars and the new voices began at exactly the same time. If you had seen and heard it, as Diggory did, you would have felt quite certain that it was the stars themselves which were singing, and that it was the first voice, the deep one, which had made them appear and made them sing. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be there? It'd be kind of like the voice was creating the stars as he was singing. Right. I wish I had the microphone I had at the other time so people could hear you. She said it it would have been like the voice was creating the, the, the stars as he sang. Yeah. Did you know that Bible scholars, there are some Bible scholars that think that when God created this world, he sang it into being just like Aslan sang Narnia into existence. Yeah. It feels like they, uh, the Bible and Narnia books go hand in hand because they are um, Aslan and God are yeah. similar. Yeah. Similar. 
I, I, she's totally right how, how closely related the Narnia books are to, to, to um, our experience of God. I want you to think, though, about it. What if everybody here, all we know, was made by God singing? How does that make us feel? How does it make you feel to think of that? You don't have to answer unless you want to. Think about it a little bit. Zephaniah says, God rejoices over with us with singing. He sings to us. And I wonder what he sings to us and how the song would go. When we sing to God, the Holy Spirit sings with us. So I wonder how it feels, sounds when that singing has happens with us and him together. Okay, so my question is, do you have a favorite song or um, kind of song, kind of music? Like, it's probably the Beatles. I also like worship I love it. Beatles. The Beatles are at the top of the list. That's wonderful. Any favorite song by Beatles? Um, I like Hey Jude. Hey Jude. Good. I like Yellow Submarine. Yellow Submarine. Love it. Um, Do you know Octopus Garden? Yes. It's very sketch like the lyrics are, but it's a good song. It's a good song. Yeah. Okay. The lyrics are very confusing. Yeah, they're confusing. Yeah, they are. It makes me happy. Okay, but I love it. I love it. Thank you for reminding us of the Beatles today. That is a good reminder. Okay, so that's my my hope is that this week you would, and everybody else, and everybody at home would sing maybe some Beatles this week. Okay, good. All right, so I'm going to bless you, and then you can go back and sit down, and I'm blessing all the other kids who didn't come up, and I'm also blessing the kids at home. Okay. Father, who sang over us, Jesus, our King, to whom we sing, and Spirit, who sings with us, watch over these children, and thank you for their beautiful good songs. Amen. All right. Thank you super, so much. (laughs) She does, does deserve a lot of applause. All right. So we're going to do the scripture reading, and today's is from Colossians. And the two passages are taken from a translation by N.T. Wright because that translation really sparked my imagination. Would you rise with me for the scripture reading? So from Colossians 1, 15 through 20, Jesus is the image of God, the invisible one, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, things in the heavens and here on earth, things we can see and things we cannot. Thrones and lordships and rulers and powers. All were created both through him and for him. And he is ahead prior to all else. And in him all things hold together. And he himself is supreme. The head over the body, the church. He is the start of it all. First born from realms of the dead. So in all all things he might be the chief. For in him all the fullness was glad to dwell and through him to reconcile all to himself, making peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, yes, things on the earth and also things in the heavens. And also Colossians 3.16. Let the king's word dwell richly among you as you teach and exhort one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God with grateful hearts. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. As you can see from our scripture reading, N.T. Wright has translated Colossians 1, 15 through 20 as poetry. Can you put that back up for everybody to see it? The other one? 
Super, thank you. He says, uh, and uh, sorry, Wright points out that many places all through Paul's letters contain poetry. He says, it isn't the case that first people sorted things out theologically and then they turned them into poems, but that from very early on, people, and perhaps especially Paul, found themselves saying what needed to be said in the form of short poems. As Paul wrote poetry, he discovered truth. That certainly tracks with my own experience. I'm a poet. Metaphor and the music of language resonate in me as a violin string sings under the sweep of a bow. And when I work with metaphor and language to make a poem, I often discover what I feel and think. And this is true, I believe, of most artists. About the same time as I was introduced to Paul the Poet, I encountered theologian and visual artist Makoto Fujimura's vision of God as a maker in his book, Art and Faith, The Theology of Making. Fujimura says God is the maker, and we know him through our own making. He says God sings to us, and we must sing in response. The Bible reveals God as an artist who so values the craftsman's skill and artistry necessary to design and construct the beautiful spaces of the tabernacle that the instructions for that design are given at the same time as he gave the Ten Commandments. The Bible celebrates music and dancing, and the Bible itself is a work of art. Genesis 1 and Revelation are both works of poetry. Moses, David, Miriam, Deborah all break out into song. And, the, and <clears throat> the books of Job through Malachi are almost all poetry. Mary, Zechariah, Simeon, the angels all sang out poetry at Jesus' birth. And Jesus is a master of metaphor, story, and drama. So when N.T. Wright tells us that Paul and the New Testament church discovered some of their theology through poetry... It doesn't sound so far-fetched. The Holy Spirit sings. But let's look at this Paul's Colossians poem in context. Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul when he was in his 60s probably, in prison, probably near the end of his life. He's writing, writing to a community he's never met, a group of probably two to three Gentile families in the city of Colossae in the Aegean Mountains of Asia Minor. This group of two or three families meets in the home of Philemon, his wife, Aphia, and their adult son, Archippus. The letter is being delivered by two men, Tychius and Onesimus. Do the names Philemon and Onesimus ring any bells? This is the same Philemon who has his own personal letter delivered at the same time as this Colossians letter is delivered. And that personal letter was all about Philemon's runaway slave, Onesimus. The same Onesimus who came to Paul in prison and to whom Paul now and whom Paul now calls a faithful and dear brother, a son. Paul asked Philemon in that personal letter to welcome Onesimus as you welcome me. Charge any wrong that he's done or any loss you've incurred to me. And we all know Philemon is being asked to welcome his runaway slave as an equal, precious member of his community, as a brother. That's part of the backstory of Colossians. Surely there are many more stories we don't know. 
But what we do know is this is a letter and a poem meant first for two or three family households in a culture that's whole economy is based on a system where slaves are as essential to getting anything done as electricity and gasoline are to our economies, according to Wright. And now they need to welcome back and integrate a runaway slave as a brother and an equal, while everyone else is still staying divided as into slave and master roles. In other words, this ladder is coming to real people living in real time in ugly systems that no one knows how to extricate themselves from. Perhaps no one can even imagine wanting the world to be different. But the poem's dazzling vision of Jesus' reconciliation will certainly include their own household's broken and unjust relationships. The formal structure of this poem also communicates. There are two parallel stanzas, you can see at the top and the, and the bottom, that repeat the phrase, all things. The first stanza, verses 15 through 16, sings of Jesus, who has created all things. And the third stanza, starting halfway through verse 18 through 20, sings of Jesus, who has become the first of the resurrection people, making of his death the reconciliation of all things. And smack in the middle of those two stanzas, and the incredible realities of which they sing, swirling from the beginning of creation, reaching into the future to the beginning of the new creation. The middle stanza sings in a different rhythm and cadence. And here we find the church, with Jesus as close to him as your legs and lungs are close to you. So close to Jesus are his people. Three families in Colossae, Onesimus, Aphia, Philemon, Archippus, Paul makes a poem where we, God's people, are held right in the crux of all Jesus is, all he holds and all he heads, where we are the shorthand expression of the new creation, the resurrection life expanding further and further until nothing is not caught up in that life. The form of this poem's beautiful structure conveys the message in a way that words and concepts alone will not be able to do. The Holy Spirit speaks in poetry. So here we are in 2021 in California, living in the aftermath of a traumatic pandemic, in a world scarred by institutional racism, inequities, and crises of justice and shalom that reach into every corner of society. Most of these issues are beyond any of our individual power to solve or affect, and yet we have this poem that makes audaciously huge claims about Jesus who holds all of this and a poem that places his people not in a place of scarcity and confusion that we often experience, but in a place of abundance, of presence, at the fulcrum of the creation of the universe and the redemption of that creation by our King. How do we live into this reality when it doesn't always match our experience? How do we, in the words of the poet Wendell Berry, practice resurrection? Fujimura says, we will know the artist God when we make art. Paul says one way forward is to sing. For right after Paul instructs the Colossians to let Christ shalom rule their hearts and households, that's Colossians 3.15. Right before he gives specific instructions for individual members of those households, the wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves, masters, that begins in verse 18. 
In verse 16, he gives these instructions. Let the word of the king dwell richly among you as you teach and exhort one another in all wisdom, singing. Paul isn't saying anything new here. One of the most repeated directives in the Bible is to sing. We're just going to put some of those, uh, just a sampling on the screen. There are more than 40 instances where God's people are directed to sing. I really like Psalm 149, where the psalmist calls, Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of his faithful people. And then in verse 5, Let his faithful people rejoice in this honor and sing for joy on their beds. I often sing with my twins before they go to sleep at night. Sing in the congregation, sing our lullabies and our nightly prayers. This covers a lot of singing ground. So let's talk for a minute about singing. Singing is the one art form that from the very youngest, babies and toddlers, to the most elderly, we can all respond to and participate in. You don't need any money or resources to sing. You can sing in a cathedral and you can sing around a campfire. Although training obviously enriches singing, almost everyone can sing. Singing is not only the most accessible of the arts, it also has a profound effect on our bodies, including our brains. According to neurologists, the areas connected, I'm sorry, according to neurologists, when we sing, we use a whole bunch of different parts of our brain at once. The language area, areas connected to emotion, areas connected to movement, attention, and body awareness. Endorphins, the feel-good chemicals in our body, are released when we sing. Our immune systems are strengthened. The amounts of cortisol, the cortisol, the stress hormone, decrease. Singing requires a deep, controlled breathing that helps us regulate our emotions. And then when we sing with others, as a group, our brains respond even more, releasing oxytocin, the neurochemical that increases empathy and connection. Singing together increases our sense of attachment and our sense of well-being as a group. It's hard to think of a better practice for learning to live in Christ's shalom than to sing together. Even more so when we recall that the Holy Spirit speaks in song and poetry. But now I want to widen the definition of singing to include all the ways that we have individually been created, like a violin with strings ready to be bowed to sing back to the first singer. Different forms of art and making sing to and through each of us, whether it's gardening or painting, dance or woodwork, or an almost endless list of forms of making and art. But I think there's still a strong impulse in our culture, maybe especially in our church culture, to dismiss art and artists as unnecessary or even untrustworthy because they don't tend to conform in the ways that make institutions comfortable. They don't necessarily stay on message. Additionally, as Fujimura points out, contemporary Christianity mostly focuses on mastering information and fixing individuals in our communities. There is a lot broken, and we see our job as getting the right information and applying that information to solve the effects of sin that have spread all through our society. And this is important, but this is not singing. And when we're focused on all this repair work, we might be forgetting what this creation and our existence are for in the first place. Before there was sin, Adam was working, making poetry by naming the animals. He was making beauty. 
And in Revelation, after sin and darkness are forever defeated, God's people will still be singing, making beauty. There is a call to create, to sing, that is inherent in who God is and in who we are as his image bearers. When we step into this call to make with the true maker, we practice resurrection. Fujimura points out two paths into God's new creation, mercy and beauty. Mercy and beauty are part of the resurrection life, part of Jesus upside down, the last our first kingdom, because they don't compute with a consumer-driven culture. For most of us, all our lives, the default has been to achieve, to get, and then to guard what we've achieved and acquired. Even when we are overwhelmed and exhausted and so stressed, we can only numb ourselves. How desperately we need, how desperately our neighbors need mercy, how desperately we need beauty. And lately we've seen more of an impulse to make and sing based on the simple, profound need. During the pandemic, many people turned to the making of bread, to gardening, to craft work of all kinds as a way to be present to their bodies and to be with themselves. At the height of the COVID crisis in Italy, Italians took to their balconies to sing opera and other songs to each other. They knew in their souls that this was a way to care for their neighbors and to care for themselves. Still, it is a subversive act to sing, to make beauty, and to tend to our, our souls and the souls of our neighbor in this way. It is a spiritual battle, filled with squawking messages of shame and scarcity, of not enough money, talent, time, worth. But these are lies. Yes, art is hard. Mercy is hard. And if we give in to any kind of perfectionism, it will be impossible. But the economy of abundance is available to those who want it. This is our faith. So find what sings to you and in you and learn to sing in reply. There are seasons when we do not have the resources for intense artistic practice. But we can always think of ourselves as makers. Make the beauty of a family dinner or a bedtime routine. Make the beauty of reading aloud a good story. Make a TikTok video that brings laughter. In living out beauty and mercy, we will know hardship and pain. We will not be able to protect ourselves. The artist cannot hide her brokenness. Mercy quickly gets us deep in the weeds of our own needs for mercy. And grace is there if that's what we're after and not our own glory. Grace will meet us. Jesus, with his crucifixion scars still etched across his resurrection body, shows us the way as he keeps making art out of the medium of our very lives. Do you hear how good this is? I am so relieved and amazed at the beauty and generous, stunning, joyous goodness of God. That this is how we know him. That this is how we live with him. The order of the universe is not centered around getting things right, achieving, getting things fixed. Beauty and mercy are at the foundation. And the good news is that the singer can tune our hearts to sing again. 
when I make something, most often when I make poetry, but also when I act as a creative maker in my extremely un-Instagrammable homemaking, cooking, and gardening. Whenever I act with intentionality and creativity, I experience deep joy. This joy is a powerful antidote to pressure, shame, and numbing. Writing poetry requires me to be present in my body. Patience is required to practice, much less master any form of beauty making. Humility is required. Honesty is required. And those costs don't begin to compare to the prize, which is knowing just a little better the one who is beauty, the one who is mercy. In part, that is why we often meet God through an artist's work, even those who are not traditional followers of Christ. When an artist practices the humility, compassion, patience, presence, honesty, and love required to make art, they are met by the holy, and the light shines through. The postures that art requires are conduits of the holy, whatever our propositional belief statements. Another reason we meet God in art is because responding to art is also a part of making. That is how it differs from consumeristic passive entertainment. When we grapple with a movie or a novel, we participate in making that story. When I let music or a painting or a cathedral or a poem resonate within me, I become a part of making that song, that painting, that cathedral, that poem. Maybe that's especially true when we do it with others. Think of what it's like to sit in a dark, crowded theater to watch a wonderful movie. You are making that together with the rest of the audience, and it's delightful. In 2020, the world's most prestigious design award was given to two groups of artists, one in the U.S. and one in Mexico, who created what they called the teeter-totter wall. They brought pink seesaws to the metal slats of the border wall and transformed it into a playground where children and their families from El Paso, Texas, and Anapra, Mexico, met that day and played together on seesaws. These artists transformed what was built for self-protection and separation into a fulcrum for joy and shalom. They made beauty. They showed mercy. My sister Carrie Vance is trained as a landscape architect, and she first told me about the teeter-totters via Facebook. And she had this profound comment at the time. Pay attention to artists and designers, she urged. Look for the people who are creating and playing. That's where the real work is being done. It's tricky because it looks like play. Art and design is often referred to as decorating and extras. Art is never extra. It's the gate to a deeper reality. It's letting go of control. At its heart, art excludes the possibility of managing the outcome. It is the true avenue for human flourishing. The motivator of art is love, often recognized as passion, and freedom. She went on, The cross of Jesus is the fullest and most expressive design of love ever conceived and executed. The cross, the ultimate fulcrum for transforming sin and shame into love and freedom. Let the king's word dwell richly among you as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom singing. 
the word that sang us into existence, the word that became flesh to dwell among us and to die our death for us and bring resurrection right into our universe, this word that moved among the apostles, creating a new people out of so many different ethnic groups and sectors of society, let that word dwell richly among us. We have the agency to choose to make with our lives together a brocaded tabernacle, a gold-fitted temple, where the word may dwell among us richly. Rich in grace, like good soil, is rich with nutrients for growth. Rich in truth, like veins of gold hidden underground among us, ready to become a resource of incredible beauty and wealth. Rich enough to give us imaginations for a new reality, a new heavens and earth kingdom. Maybe Paul and Onesimus and Philemon and Aphia and Archibus couldn't imagine the day when slavery would be repulsive and obsolete among God's people. But Jesus imagined that day. And in their own limited ways, through Jesus, Onesimus and Paul and Philemon and Aphia and Archippus and Paul loved and lived and sang themselves into Christ's new resurrection creation. Perhaps we cannot imagine how to fix the church, much less society. But we can show mercy, and we can sing, and God will surely join our song.